Welcome to a new episode of the Phil Mount Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're featuring a special Q&A from the 59th New York Film Festival with the Souvenir Part 2 director, Joanna Hogg, and NYFF Director of Programming, Dennis Lim. Grieving and depleted from the tragic end of a relationship with a boyfriend who had suffered from drug addiction, young Julie, played by Honor Swinton Byrne, summons the emotional and creative fortitude to forge ahead as a film student in 1980s London. Continuing the remarkable autobiographical saga she had begun in 2019's The Souvenir, British director Joanna Hogg, a filmmaker of unceasing visual ingenuity and sociological specificity, fashions a gently metacinematic mirror image of part one, cutting to the quick and one surprising enthralling idea after another. A film about finding one's artistic inspiration and individuality that avoids every possible cliché, The Souvenir Part 2 is a bold conclusion to the story of unsentimental education. Told with the filmmaker's inimitable oblique poignancy and featuring a mesmerizing supporting cast, including Tilda Swinton, Harris Dickinson, Ariane Lebed, Joe Alwyn, and a scene-stealing Richard A. Wadey. The Souvenir Part 2 is now playing in our theaters. For showtimes and tickets, go to filmlink.org slash souvenir2. So I'll, I'll start with a few questions. This is always conceived as uh, as two films from the very beginning, right? Yes, yes. Um, it wasn't an afterthought. Uh, when I decided to tell the story, I knew that it had to be told in two parts. And uh, the only thing I was worried about is that I was uh, I had to shoot the first part uh, first and then wait uh, a year to shoot the second part. Mm-hmm. And I was worried that if I didn't shoot them together, we originally planned to film them together, but mm-hmm. we couldn't raise the money to do, shoot them at the same time. I thought there'd be a danger mm. that I wouldn't get to shoot the second part. And for me, the first part isn't possible without the second part and vice versa. They, 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 they are two uh, stories. Well, they're one story uh, uh, told in two films. Yeah. But I I know this is a f- um, a story a film you've been thinking about for literally decades. You started thinking about this in the late '80s, so even then you knew this was going to be a two part film. Well, I only realized because I was looking back um, when I was making the first part. Um, a lot of what I did when I was preparing for it and writing it mm-hmm. was looking at old diaries of mine, and I hadn't realized until I started looking at a diary from 1988 uh, that I had wanted to tell the story in two parts. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how you conceptualized this, the relationship between part one and part two? I mean, it's pr- part one is pretty clearly about the relationship. Part two is about after the relationship. I mean, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's how would you characterize, I mean, the relationship of part two to part one? Uh, there's many different ways of looking at it, but when I mean back in 1988, which is a long time ago, uh, I I saw it and I still see it like this in a way as the yes telling the story of the relationship and then the response and the reaction to the relationship. Uh, but in some ways, when I started making part two and planning part two, I realized that also what I was doing was uh, telling a story of the making of part one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So did that gap change anything for you? I mean, you, as you said, you finished part one, released it, put it out into the world, talked about it, you know, before you went back to part two, which is not how you initially you know, th- thought you would make the film. So 
did that gap, you know, that did, did that change anything in terms of what you wanted to do in part two? Just having having that already be out in the world, having talked about it, you know, listened to reactions and. Well, I was that I was worried about that gap actually, and I, and I decided when when part one came out um, that I wouldn't read any any reactions to it, mm -hmm. um, which I didn't. Um, but of course, you can't. Com I couldn't completely isolate myself from any reactions from anybody, so I heard things secondhand. Um, and I was worried that even, yeah, hearing opinions that I, that it would somehow shape what I did with part two. But, uh, you know, I wasn't, I'm not, I'm not as, as sort of sensitive maybe as I think I am on some level. And I, and I, uh, I could hear those things, but at the same time, I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to do with part two. And in the end, I'm really glad that I didn't shoot the two films together mm. uh, because there's so many ideas that I got in that uh, gap of a year, um, so many ideas I'm all forgotten now, actually. But I know some very key things that I put into part two that I wouldn't have done if I if I shot them at the same time. And one of the ideas I had um, was the film within the film that Julie makes. I don't think I'd thought about that when I was first planning planning mm. uh, to 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 make the second part. So that 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 in that. Yeah, I a lot. Yeah, had a lot of new ideas. Well, let's talk about that that film within the film. Um, you know, her her graduation film. Um, I know that you know. Obviously, this is a, you you in part one. I assume in part two as well. You worked with a lot of documentary material in a sense to really you know to create this 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 film this fiction. Um, does Julie's graduation film that we see in this film bear any resemblance to yours? Uh, in, uh, in a in a in a key way, not actually, and 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 in and and in one important way that it doesn't resemble it is is that Julie, uh, in part two, makes the film based on her relationship with Anthony, yeah. and in a way that film that I film within a film that I made is a sort of wishful thinking, or was a chance to make something that I wish I'd made when I was at film school. Um, I wasn't yet equipped um, when I was still at film school to to even examine in any shape or form the relationship that I'd been through on which part one is based. Mm -hmm. um, but Ju I decided that Julie would have some awareness of this experience that she'd been through. Um, but then it was also the experience of making part one and how I felt reconstructing the flat that I lived in and reconstructing this relationship in a mm -hmm. way. Um, I, I, I wanted to examine that. So it was just many different things colliding at the same time. It's quite hard to pull it apart sure. at this point. Was your working process the same for part two, you know, in terms of how you work with actors? And maybe we should actually just even say a little bit about your working process, which is quite unconventional in that you do not have, you don't have conventional scripts. Should we say a bit about how you work with, 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 with that? <laughs> I, I, I can try and, and try not to expand for too long about it, but yeah, it really uh, in in uh, with part one. Well, each time I make a film, I write a document that's about thirty pages long. That's more like a short story in a way. And with part one, um, Honor, who plays Julie, uh, didn't see anything on paper at all. She didn't. She didn't. All she knew was a little bit about the character that she was going to play. She had no idea of the story 
that was going to unfold. She was incredibly brave to agree to participate in something of which she knew very little about. Um, she could only trust me, in a sense, and trust her own instincts. Um, but Tom Burke, who plays Anthony, uh, was privy to the document that I wrote, and also a lot more uh, of... Um, he listened to recordings of the, the man that he was basing his character on. He, uh, he got a lot of information from me about this story. Um, he knew exactly where it was going, and that just seemed right to me that he knew where where the story was going and Julie wouldn't. Um, but when we made part two, of course, this was also without Anthony. Julie was on her own and I thought, well, Julie now needs to know where she's going. She does know where she's going. She wants to be a filmmaker. So she then saw the story. She knew where it was going to go. And so I think that's quite a big difference in terms of the, the process. And then, and then she, uh, Honor, took it in her own direction in the sense that I realized that she'd been observing me during the making of part one. And so when she's playing Julie directing as a film student, the, it was very strange. I, I, I sometimes saw myself, it wasn't very flattering. But <laughs> so, so she uh, was incredibly clever in her, her observations and she was quite, she kept that to herself in a way. I'm not sure she was fully aware of what she'd been doing, but anyway, it was, it was interesting. Hi, I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. The Film Comment Letter is a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com to get the letter every week. Support independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. You've talked about, you know, in part one, just going back and looking at photographs and letters and notes from the time. Was it, did you do the same for part two was it, or was there more invention or what was, you know, did you find? I'm curious also because you're, you're, this, it's, it's interesting that how, how you go into this, this film school, you know, environment, which is, again, so precisely uh, depicted in the film. Yeah. Well, no, it's true. There was a lot more invention in part two. I didn't feel uh, uh, constrained by by this relationship that's depicted in the first part. I, I I wanted to. I was excited to explore areas that I hadn't explored as a director before. And I sort of began life at film school making much more stylized, almost theatrical work. And I thought it would be really interesting and fun. And it was fun. To to um, to go back to to being that film student again in a way. So I I I, I got um, I really yeah I sort of transported myself back to the 80s. It felt very I felt quite sad in a way that it was it was uh, just a dream and not really you know I wasn't really transported back then. But I, I what am I trying to say? I felt a fondness for that time and the creativity and inventiveness of that time and the potential that one had as a filmmaker. Um, is Richard Ayotte's character based on anyone in particular? <laughs> he, he, he's not just based on on one person. He's he's a sort of amalgam of different 
uh, directors I've come across, even a little bit of myself in there too. So he, he, I can't, yeah, it's not just one person, but he had a lot of fun with that role. Yeah. I'll just ask one more and then we'll, we'll take a few from the audience. You know, I'm, I'm wondering if you, you, I don't want to say reference points, but you know, this, this very fraught project of autobiography of autofiction that, you know, that the souvenir is like, did you think of other people who'd attempted this? Did you think of, you know, what to do, what not to do? What are, what are the traps of a project like this? You know, what did you want to avoid? And, and, and yeah, was anyone on your mind in terms of, you know, somebody who actually mined their own lives, put it on the screen? Uh, no one comes to mind, and I'm not sure if anyone came to mind at the time. And I think if I'd explored it too much, yeah. I might have put myself off, actually. Mm -hmm. So I try not to think of it as so acutely personal when I'm making the film. And in, in a strange way, once I've written it, uh, even writing it in the strange way I do it, I and then I start to cast it, and then I have all my uh, wonderful collaborators working with me, like my cinematographer and my production designer and my editor, it doesn't, it doesn't feel uh, like it's coming from me anymore in a strange way. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in collaboration and, and seeing what other people bring to something. And, and in a way, it seems strange to take a story that happened to me in a, in a, in a similar way to the, the story that happens to uh, Julie, but but take something very personal and then and then sort of mm. let go of it. Uh, for me, the, the letting go is really important. Yeah. Okay, I think we have time for a few questions uh, from the audience. Uh, I'll, I'll just try to paraphrase um, uh, that. There was it, the scene. This question is about the scene in in the van, in the van, the argument. Um, and uh, whether, I guess, whether those dynamics are, are still in play for you on a film set these days? Yeah, uh, fortunately not. <laughs> but there's always anxiety around. You always, you know, question the ideas you have or how they're going to be uh, uh, experienced or how they're going to be understood by other people. Uh, so it's a sort of externalization of one's anxieties, maybe. But I think I'm, I maybe that was more. Uh, it's more connected to when I was a film student. I think we behave better now. We're grown ups. <laughs> um, so that's uh, well. Certainly, if anyone's feeling that, they're not telling me to my face. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, right here. The question is. Um, Apparently, in an interview, you said you read about films more than you watch films. Actually, I wouldn't say that I, uh, I read more than I watch films, but I think in terms of getting inspiration for what I do, I feel freer if I read some... I mean, I guess it has to be something good or something well-written that's got interesting ideas in it, but I find... Um, I mean, I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, the, the British Film Institute in London, for example, do these, and you probably do a similar thing here, they do bring up uh, very detailed booklets of films. Um, so that, you know, the, there's one that they brought out about Fellini's Eight and a Half, for example. And although I watched Eight and a Half again before I made The Souvenir, uh, particularly part two, I, uh, I read this booklet. It was like I just sort of poured over it. It was just so interesting to me, and it was sort of quite academic ideas about the film. But it, yeah, I don't know. There's a freedom anyway in in, in reading about ideas for something, and of course it connects with 
you know, the fact that I know the film anyway, but I wouldn't say the reading replaces watching films, not at all, but in terms of if I'm working on ideas and I don't tend to watch a lot of films when I'm writing something of my own, um, but, I, but I feel I'm able to read, yeah. Were there other films you watched besides Eight and a Half? Uh, well, I just I, I made the decision to watch films that I was inspired by when I was at film school when I made my graduation film, which inspired part two. So I watched um, uh, Mitchell Lyson's Lady in the Dark because that was a film I loved back then. I watched um, Cover Girl by um, Charles Vidor, I, I, uh, Ticket of No Return, Ulrich Ottinger. I didn't know all these films that I was obsessed by when I was a film student. And I thought, well, I'm interested in being in that zone of the early 1980s and, and what, yeah, to somehow color the film and, and also create a sense of that time. Okay, I think we can take a couple more. Uh, yes? The question is about the visual style and, and shooting on film in a digital world. Well, I mean, the choice of 16 millimeter, and it's not just 16 millimeter in the film. There are some parts of, of, particularly when Julie's making her graduation film, we shot that in digital, uh, partly because I knew that I wanted to have quite long takes for those scenes, but also I was interested in mixing up the, 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 the format. So there's uh, the black and white musical that uh, Patrick Richard's character makes, that's 35 millimeter. But yeah, most of it's 16 millimeter, you're right. And that, I thought, I wanted that texture. And also, that's what I used. I shot mostly on 16 millimeter when I was at film school. So again, it was to do with that time. And then the Super 8, well, I had a Nizzo myself, so I have a certain affection for that camera. Um, so it made sense in that way. But then I also included some Super 8 that I shot uh, from the 1980s. So it's quite mixed up. I wanted it to have a different textures, not just one texture. Okay, let's take one last uh, question. Yes, sir. This question is about the, the, the shots of nature. That, yeah, they're interspersed throughout the film. I think that came from, it wasn't a very specific idea in the sense that it wasn't to do with a theme really, but it was to do with home. And I shot, uh, the garden scenes are actually shot in my mother's garden. Um, so there was something about my mother there uh, who sadly passed away in March. So I, 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 but I used the garden before she died. But it would, there was a connection of, of Rosalind's character and Julie's parents of the, because in part one, we don't have so much of home and in part two, we do. And so the flowers really came from my mother's garden. Uh, it's not really more complicated than that, but it felt like I liked, they felt like a little bit like chapter headings to me. I think we, yeah, I'm getting assigned to wrap up. So I, that's all the time we have for, um, I'm afraid, but thank you all for coming. Joanna, thanks so much. Thank you.